0: All right, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Last week, we began this Christmas sermon series, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a name or a title, maybe even, for the Messiah. It's, a, it's especially mentioned by the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. And in Matthew chapter 1, uh, the writer there says that this is he who is Emmanuel. It's this Hebrew word that means God with us. Because that is the good news of Christmas. That the eternal word, as we saw last week in John chapter 1, the eternal word has put on flesh and dwelt among us. And so we're continuing to study that reality in the book of Hebrews. And so I'll read these words for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, His Son through whom He also created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, I had a friend who was a big baseball player back in high school. He could throw that speed ball by you, make you look like a fool. I saw him the other night at this roadside bar. I was walking in, he was walking out. We went back inside, sat down, had a few drinks. But all he kept talking about was glory days, glory days, glory days. Well, there's a girl that lives up the block back in school. She could turn all the boys' heads. Sometimes on a Friday, I'll stop by, have a few drinks after she puts her kids to bed. Her and her husband, Bobby, well, they split up. I guess it's two years gone by. We sit down, talking about the old times. She says when she feels like crying, she starts laughing, thinking about glory days, glory days, glory days. I think I'm going to go to the well tonight. I'm going to drink till I get my fill. Hope when I get old I don't sit around talking about it, but I probably will. Yeah, sitting back trying to recapture a little of the glory of. Well, time slips away and leaves you with nothing, mister, but boring stories of glory days, glory days, glory days. Well, these are the three verses of Bruce Springsteen's The Boss famous song, Glory Days. And if you listen to the music of the song, it's pretty upbeat. It's fast tempoed, kind of a cheerful melody, a song you can sing in the shower, a song you can happily dance to. But the words of the song, I think, are quite different. The lyrics describe two of his old high school friends. There's his baseball playing buddy, there's his head turning lady friend, and now whenever he meets with these friends, All they keep talking about was glory days. And then in the final verse, he's by himself, and he thinks, I hope when I don't get older, when I get older and sit around thinking about them, but I probably will, just sitting back trying to recapture a little of the glory. But time slips away and leaves you with nothing, mister, but boring stories of glory gone by. All he's got left is stories. All he can do is try to recapture the glory that's gone. So though the melody of the song is quite happy and uplifting, the content of the lyrics have a very different feel. Feelings of disappointment, discouragement, beat down, stuck, longing for what once was. Well, the audience of the letter of Hebrews is not unlike the characters in Springsteen's song. This letter was written primarily to Jews, or Hebrews, hence the name, Jews who became Christians, they put their trust in Messiah Jesus, but then after some time started to experience discouragement in their faith. And it seems the primary way they faced discouragement was persecution for their faith, so we know from Hebrews chapter 10 in the letter that many of these believers had been, quote, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So they were publicly, verbally mocked, perhaps even beaten, because they followed Jesus. Later in chapter 10, it's made clear also that they were subject to having their property seized. I guess the authorities just said, hey, it's open season on these Christians' homes. Take what you want. And finally, in chapter 13 of the letter, it's implied that some of these believers also were imprisoned for their faith. And so it seems that the temptation arose to go back on their Christian belief They were so discouraged, they were so literally beat down, they started to long for the way things used to be. You see, by this point in history, Jews were a protected class within the Roman Empire. The official religion of the empire was, of course, the Roman pantheon of gods, but the emperor had granted Judaism a pass because of the stiff resistance Jews had demonstrated in the Maccabean Revolt of 160 BC. So if these Jewish Christians went back on their Christian commitment, if they just re-embraced traditional Judaism, if they returned to the synagogue, if they returned to Old Testament religion, then hey, no more persecution. No more public scoldings and beatings, no more plundering of our property, no more imprisonment. It'll be the glory days again if we just roll back the clock of redemptive history and just pretend Jesus never came. Things will be glorious again. Well, Christian, what about you? Do you look back on the story of your life with longing? Do you look back at your life before Christ and think, man, things were better then. I didn't have to sacrifice my money. I didn't have to restrain my sensual lust. I didn't have to keep my commitments. I didn't have to worry so much about living with godly integrity. Do you look back on the story of your life with longing for things to be the way they used to be? Well, if so, if there's a part of you that does, then it can be discouraging. It can keep you stuck from embracing where God has you now and the future that he's leading you into. And so the author of the Hebrews writes to address just such discouragement. He writes passionately. He exhorts them with zeal. He charges them to persevere in faith. But his main strategy to address their discouragement is to exalt the person and work of Christ Jesus. And he does this from the very start of his letter. Look again at verses 1 and 2. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us. By his son. So when the author says here last days, he doesn't simply mean these last few days that have recently gone by. No, he's referring to the entire timeline of redemptive history. And he says, Long ago, God spoke to his Old Testament people in many times and in many ways, but it's all been building towards these last days. He's saying to them, we are at the climax of biblical history. All of God's revelation up until this point has been building to this point. These are the messianic glory days that the patriarchs and prophets looked forward to. To go back, to rewind the clock on redemptive history, misses the whole point. And I want to say the same thing to you, brother, sister, in Jesus. To go back to your life before Christ misses the whole point of your life. You were made to know God. You were wired for relationship with Him. And even though there may have been some things that were easier before your life in Christ, there may have been a lot of things easier before your life in Christ. Even still, He is God's ultimate word to you. The ultimate purpose of your life can only be fulfilled as you endure growing in him. And again, the author's main strategy for calling us forward in our journey of faith is to exalt Christ before us. And so as we look at the rest of these verses, we're going to see three reasons why Jesus is God's greater word to us. There's no other way to know God more fully than in the person of Jesus. And the first reason we're able to know this is because Jesus relates with God uniquely. He relates with God uniquely. He's able to reveal God supremely because he relates with God uniquely like no one else. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. All these patriarchs and prophets, they received remarkable revelation from God, but, the author says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by a Son. All these Old Testament figures were very close with God, but they were not His Son. These other men who received revelation from God, they were mere creatures, but Jesus is the eternally begotten Son from the Father. And so he has an exclusively unique relationship with the Father. Therefore, he can uniquely reveal him to us. Later in verse 3, the author says about Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. So this is the closeness of Jesus and the Father. If we saw the glory of God visibly manifest, what would be radiating from him is Jesus. Like, what does that even mean? Bible interpreters and theologians struggle to know, but as Jesus said in John 14, Jesus said to his disciples there, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the author says, he's the exact imprint Of God's nature. The word translated here is imprint. It's the same word used for a stamp or imprint made on a coin so that the coin would have markings indicating what kind of coin it was. So, again, the author is saying that if God were stamped on something, the image of that imprint would be Jesus. He's the radiance of God, He's the imprint of God because He's the Son of God. Because he relates with God in a unique way. So Meg and I, year by year, are getting pretty close to 40 years old. I'm less than two years away. She's not far behind me. So we are, it feels like, aging up a bit here. Maybe not old, but certainly not young either. But by getting old like this, we are for sure getting to see our parents grow older. And not a few times it has been stated by one of us, man, I hope I had never turned into my dad. Or I hope I don't act like my mom. But the truth is that this is inevitable. And Meg has already called me on it before. You're acting just like your dad. But I can't help it, mostly. I'm his son. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. I'm the exact imprint of his nature. And so it is with Jesus, the one and only Son of God. He makes God known to us uniquely because he relates with God uniquely as his Son. So yes, it may be hard following Jesus. It may be discouraging and make you look back to what feel like were better days. But friend, you will never know God And you will never fulfill your created purpose apart from continuing to follow him. Three reasons why Jesus is God's greater word to us. He uniquely relates with God. Secondly, he powerfully acts with God. Jesus acts with God powerfully. In verses 2 through 3, the writer shares two related actions that Jesus carries out. First, in verse 2. He mentions that it was through Jesus that God created the world. And then in verse 3, he says also that Jesus upholds the world by the word of his power. So Jesus is both the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the creative agent through whom God made the world and it's His voice that sovereignly upholds the world. He's the builder of creation and He's the nuts and bolts that actually hold it together. And so without Jesus, nothing would exist and without Jesus, anything that does exist would cease to exist because He with God acted to both create and sustain the world. You think back across Old Testament history, many heroes of the faith were used by God to do amazing things. Moses led God's people in the Exodus. Solomon built God's temple in Jerusalem. Daniel confronted God's enemies in the exile. But as great as those accomplishments were, they pale in comparison to actually creating and sustaining the world. So, this may be a stretch, but it's kind of like creating, uh, comparing Steve Jobs and Alexander Graham Bell. Sure, Jobs helped innovate an amazing phone, but he didn't invent the phone. Or Jameer Gibbs and Barry Sanders. Sure, Gibbs could be a great running back for the Lions, but he'll never be the OG. There's a supremacy to these inventors of technology and founders of the franchise that they will always have. Same for Jesus. He's done things and is doing things that can never be rivaled by any other man of God. Don't look to Moses or David. Don't look to Muhammad or Buddha. Don't look to your yoga teacher or favorite Instagram influencer or self help guru or health and wealth preacher. Don't go back to the false gods and empty promises of your former life. Look to Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things. As we sang before, he has no rivals. He has no equals. Now and forever. There's no other way to know God more fully Than through Jesus. And we know this because he relates with God uniquely, he acts with God powerfully, and finally, he rules with God in heaven. He rules with God in heaven. We see this truth in verse 2. Right after he mentions that God has now spoken to us by his Son, he then mentions that Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. And this is quite natural. Jesus is God's son, and so it's no surprise that he is God's heir. Jesus is God's appointed heir and owner of all things. And then later in verse 3, he mentions that Jesus sits enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. And on this heavenly throne, he is superior to angels. He inherits the name above all names. He is the Lord And this, once more, is in stark contrast to God's Old Testament people. Israel inherited many blessings from God. They are said to have inherited God's promises. They are said to have inherited the promised land. But only Jesus is the inheritor of all things. Only Jesus is, by divine right, the ruler and owner of the cosmos. But notice in verse 3 that Jesus only takes his seat upon the throne in heaven after making purification for sins. This, of course, is a reference to Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross. And you might ask, how does Jesus' death purify us from sin? Well, it's because he took the stain of sin upon himself. A stain that he himself had not incurred. Jesus never sinned. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 says that Jesus' sacrifice was as a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus' life was undefiled, but he was then ruined on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to be. He was smothered with the stain of sin so that you and I could be purified from our iniquity. And it's only then, the author says, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus sat down signifying that his work of redemption is complete. And then having fulfilled his father's plan to purify people, he was appointed the heir of all things. Having accomplished the will of God to break sin's curse, he inherited the name above all names, the Lord Jesus, the Lord even over death itself. So there's something about sitting down that really signifies completion, that you're finished. So after a long day's work, you've finally finished all you have to do. You get in your car, you drive to your home, you bust through your door, and you plop down on the couch. This is definitely going to be the case for me in just a couple hours. Sunday morning, worshiping and preaching and singing and fellowship. None of it is over until I recline, until I stretch out, lay down on the couch. That's when I know it is finished It's over. I did it. Well, Jesus does the same thing. The divine Son of God, he took on flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, lived the life that you and I should have lived. He lived a blameless life of love and strength and faithfulness. He lived the life that you and I should have lived, and then he died the death that we deserved, taking upon himself the stain for our sin so that we could be purified. And then after his death, Jesus rose from the grave, but he not only rose from the grave, he ascended, he was exalted to heaven, where he then sat down at the right hand of majesty, enthroned forever. As the ruler of all, he was finished with the work of redemption on our behalf. Friend, there is no other who can make God so fully known to you. Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is the powerful creator with God, and he is the one who rules with God in heaven. If you look to Jesus... If you put your faith in Jesus, you will be purified from sin, and you will truly know God. In the last season of NBC's hit show, The Office, one of the characters, Andy Bernard, he's reflecting on his time working at Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. He had worked there several years, but now he's moving on to work at his beloved Cornell University, And he, along with the other viewers of the show, are sort of reminiscing on this epic show that spanned nearly a decade of time. And Andy looks at the mockumentary camera, and he says, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. It's this really sentimental moment, especially considering that Andy is such a goofy character. You can see the tears in his eyes. I wish there was a way to know that you're in the good old days, or as Springsteen would say, the glory days. I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. Well, brothers and sisters, the pronouncement of the gospel is that we can know we are in the glory days of God's revelation because in these latter days, God has spoken to us as never before. He has spoken to us by his son. These are the good old days of God's redemptive history. Jesus has come. He has accomplished our redemption. The spirit is poured out to overflow. And God the father is known to us as we put our faith in his son. And as we walk by his Spirit. Friend, your life in Christ may be hard. It may be extremely hard. But I am here to tell you there are no answers in going back, there is no hope in going back. Look to Christ. Continue to look to Christ, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Continue to behold him, continue to follow him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together, and I will pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of the Word made flesh. We come before you in the name of him who you have spoken by in these latter days, Jesus. God, we thank you for the gospel call that left his mouth, that left the mouth of the apostles, that is rung around the world throughout the ages, and we have heard, O God, We have heard the call to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, we thank you that you have spoken, that you have made yourself known to us, not just in the written word, not just in the prophetic utterances, but you've made yourself known to us so crystal clear, so compellingly in the life of Christ. Father, I trust that there are many here, like our brothers and sisters who are addressed in this letter. I trust there are many here who are discouraged. Many here who are disappointed, discouraged with other people, discouraged with themselves, feeling disappointed by you even. Father, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would speak to our discouraged hearts. I pray that you would lift our heads, open the eyes of our hearts that we may behold your son, that we may see you in him, your love, your grace, your truth. And so help us to continue to pilgrimage forward. Help us forward in our sojourn. Despite all the obstacles, may we continue to see Jesus with clarity. It's in his name we pray and continue to worship. Amen.